Welcome to the Discomfort by Design podcast, where we showcase people who chase discomfort, live life on the fringe, and pursue high adventure. We bring you the stories that inspire you to go find out. Now here's your host, Taylor Quick. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to part two with the man, Major Donnie Bigum. Donnie, how you doing, bud? I'm doing excellent, man. It's just great to be back up on the network with you. I'm excited about this opportunity. We can talk and dive a little deeper in some of these other facets that we got an opportunity to open a can on uh, last time. Yeah, man, I'm I'm really excited about it. Um, you know, we last time we got to talking, and and you told that really awesome story with the L ambush and the things like that. And then I'd forgot it 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 resonated with me, and I was like, man, I feel like I've heard that before. You talked about that at your Summer Strong presentation, didn't you? The uh, only piece I spoke briefly was the point of stepping out of the vehicle and actually having a muzzle within ten yards, you know, within your twelve o'clock position. Uh, and I kind of alluded to what God, you know, did during that situation. Yeah, I thought I thought some of it sounded very familiar. And so it, I was reminded of that when Sornex put up um, some of your Summer Strong presentation as, as they released that in conjunction with uh, the latest release they have with the tactical strength training program. Uh, man, what what is what is that that you've done with Sornex? And can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, we, me and Bert, we got an opportunity to sit down uh, about November of 2020. Uh, so it's, you know, a little over 15 months ago. And he's just like, Donnie, you've done a lot of stuff, you know, with the Army in reference to human performance. Is there something that you would really like to do or something that you didn't complete while you were still in uniform? And I told him I'd really like to provide an app, a solution for our warriors you know, that wants to join or is already serving, et cetera. So that's what we worked on. So we put together about 450 videos. I did every one of the exercises uh, with a great team with uh, Ricky, you know, and uh, Darren uh, out at Sornex. Uh, we captured all that. I wrote the programming for it. Uh, so, yes, it was just released today. Uh, we're starting off with a Tier 3 12-week program. And you say, well, what is tier three where the army operates in tiers for complexity on the battlefield and what organizations are going to execute Well, your tier three is more your conventional soldier. That's kind of your 82nd airborne, 101st, your tier two and tier one starts getting to your special operation and, and really high speed guys that are handling those, what we call high vis targets. Uh, so, yes, it just released today. I'm super excited about it. Uh, I'm looking forward to hopefully you know, get an opportunity to continue to serve the tactical population through that app. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And and along with that release, uh, I, I'm pretty sure I saw that you got selected as a speaker for a convention coming up. Is that accurate? That's correct. I'll be speaking out in San Antonio uh, the 23rd through the 26th of August. I actually specifically speak on the 25th, but this is for the tactical strength and conditioning facilitator with the NSCA. They do an annual training each year. And this year I'm going to be talking about biomechanical analysis. And I'm going to really use a squat as a platform or a podium to really talk about how, you know, it's essential for the warrior to be able to have that baseline strength and how to correct those deficiencies 
when you're in a fixed controlled environment versus a moving environment when you get on a battlefield. Yeah, absolutely. And so for anyone listening that's not familiar, the NSCA is a National Strength Conditioning Association. They are a, a certifying body that oversees the CSCS certification, which is the uh, Certified Strength Conditioning Specialist. It is uh, one of the higher strength conditioning certifications you can receive. And in recent years, they have developed a tactical arm that uh, that's really kind of geared in specifically for strength coaches that are serving the tactical community. Um, and, and part of that, part of the fact that the reason that we have strength coaches serving the tactical community is because of Major Bigham and what he has done within the military and, and, and making sure that, that we got away from just training soldiers just to be able to go out and, and, and complete, you know, basic military tasks, but to, to really drive human performance to be a better machine, essentially. You know, we're, we're, the, the military is, is an extremely high-risk and high-danger situation when, when they are in the field. Uh, even, even in times of peace, when they're out in the field, there's a lot that goes on, and having that, that base level of human performance is very, very important. And we've seen a huge surge in tactical strength and conditioning coaches uh, over the last five to 10 years, thanks in part to Major Bigham. So, uh, man, I applaud you for that. Congratulations on getting you know selected to speak on this this app release with Sorenex. Man, you've got a whole lot going on right now. So I, what, what I want to do is I want to go back to the beginning. So when you started really starting to put things out into the leadership in the military side of things where you were talking about why we had to get away from just the the standard fitness requirements and move towards what now we know as the ACFT. How did that all come about? What did you do? How, what pathway did you take? Because I can imagine you got a ton of resistance to that on the front end. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No doubt about that, Coach. I uh... Started that back in 2013, 2014, you know, we got an opportunity to partner and collaborate with Usarium uh, up in the D.C. footprint. Uh, they essentially had a team that was looking at all the high physical demand requirements uh, for our, our combat warriors. Uh, we collaborated together uh, to really start collecting some data, you know, across different aspects, like, for example, for a tanker you know, to be able to load around uh, into uh, the turret, you know, it was one of the tasks that we set up in an armor community that was just in an open bay and it had wooden uh, modified locations uh, equivalent to the turret and they had uh, dummy rounds that we had to move within a certain time span. So we started capturing a lot of that data and that data helped us drive the six events that we have now. Um, because we had so much different variety, we allowed the command and we allowed the data points to really talk and provide clarity, you know, to the commander, because that was ultimately our goal. The Army commander is solely responsible for the combat readiness of a soldier. And the, the tool that the commander was using for majority of the units was the APFT. And we all know the Army Physical Fitness Test started back in the 1980s and was in place for almost 40 years. It was only muscle endurance and oxidative base. You had push-up, sit-up, two-mile run. That was really the only tool uh, a company, battalion, brigade, or division commander had that was on his template or his database to say, what is our combat fitness level right now within the organization? 
So that was why we dug deeper to say, how can we get five or six other fitness components into the test and make it feasible? One, costly, where it ain't too expensive. Two, where we can do mass tests in, in a timely manner. So we're not taking you know months to complete a lot of tests and screening. And that it would be in line with more of your mission essential tasks within the high physical demand needs of that soldier. No, I think that's perfect. And so like, you know, that's what we do on the strength and conditioning side of athletics, right? So, you know, when, when, when we do an analysis, a needs analysis on an athlete, we look at, A, what sport are they playing? Where are they competing? What position are they competing in? Because I can imagine that someone that's a tanker may have a completely different physiological need versus someone who flies a drone or versus someone who's, you know, a boot on the ground with a machine gun. You know, I imagine there's a lot of a, a really broad spectrum uh, of physical and physiological needs that have to happen the exact same way as there's a broad spectrum of physiological needs between an offensive lineman, a running back and a kicker. You know what I mean? So I love where, where this is switching and it, and it goes, you know, it, it happened. You know, Boyd Epley did a great job of, of, of jumping off strength and conditioning at Nebraska when, when he started doing things and really started the kind of the snowball that has turned into modern human performance. Um, and we look at all the pioneers in the industry. And, and, and my thought, as I am seeing this begin to grow from the tactical side, is, you know, your name, guys like Brad Godbold, guys like um, Kyle Gilbert up at Fort Bragg. You know, you've got you know, Chad Pearson, who's uh, – in the, in the Marine side of things over there in Jacksonville, North Carolina, you got all these guys. And I, I really feel like 20 to 30 years down the road, your names are going to be those types of names that when we talk about human performance and we mention, you know, the laundry list of, of the legends, the names that really started human performance for athletics, man, I think like your, your guys' names are going to be synonymous with human performance in the military. And I, I completely applaud that. I think it's great. Thank you so much for that, Taylor. You know, I I can't take all the, um, you know, glory. It's just very humbling for me just to be part of those uh, working groups and those teams, uh, to be at the right place at the right time. You know, we and it goes back to, you know, that that calling from God and, and what's, what's your plan? What's the will of your life? And really, when I look at that, I could have retired from the Army, you know, in 2014. Um, but I got called to go and be the head strength coach of the U.S. Army Physical Fitness School and be part of this effort over the last seven or eight years. And that was the reason I stayed for 27 years. I said, there's a reason I think I can make a big difference and leave a mark, you know, for a future soldier that signs up in the military. He actually can show up and have a coach that is going to take a scientific approach to allow that soldier to be the best soldier he can be based on his military occupational specialty. Yeah, I, man, I think that's fantastic. You know, we talk about leaving a mark. You know, we, we talk about it in coaching. And and for us, it's leaving a mark on a You know, a kid may learn how to handle adversity. He may learn lessons in the weight room or on the field that will translate to, you know, one day when the bills are due and the baby's crying and the diapers need changing and, and all of that. That's but right. We're talking about leaving a mark in the future that's going to going to save lives and is going to you know promote the efficiency of our military arms, and I, I think that's awesome, man. So, what is 
the ACFT. How did you come up with it, you know, specifically? I know I want to break down the components, the requirements, and, and why is it so much better than what we had with the APFT? Yeah, so when you really peel the onion back and take a deeper dive into the ACFT, its focus is Army combat versus Army physical. So we went ahead and went across five other fitness components. As I stated in the beginning, you only got the sagittal plane, muscle endurance, and oxidative or aerobic test with the old test. This new test, it allows us to encompass strength from the deadlift from a hinge position. It allows us to go into a base power assessment with the uh, medicine ball throw. It allows us now to go into an anaerobic test with the sprint drag carry. And within that sprint drag carry, we allow ourselves to get in multiple movement planes because not only are we sprinting, but we're moving in laterals as part of the 25 meters of that 250. We're also pulling a sled, which allows us to work in a back pedal sagittal plane. So we've got a lot of different variations from that, it, would, it did roll into a knee tuck, which had a really good grip component on the pull-up bar, but we nixed that because, again, we had to make sure we could maintain the number, so we transitioned to a plank on that event. And then we also still retained the push-ups, but now they're hand release. You know, the hand release is going to prevent the short reps, where people try to get really fast and they think, oh, I can knock out 200 in a minute. It's going to force you now to reset the system on each push. So it gives you more of a better assessment of their upper body strength. And then lastly, we still have the two-mile run. We still got an oxidative test in a sagittal plane. But the difference is the old event, you would get 10 minutes rest coming out of your sit-ups before you went into the two-mile run. Now there's not really an allocated time. You're really looking at about 90 seconds to two minutes, and you're moving into that run. So your ability to go from an anaerobic test, like your sprint drag carry, to a plank immediately into a two-mile run gives us a better assessment on the ground because in combat, yeah, do we do every one of those movement patterns? No, not specifically. But if you break down certain MOSs, they use certain aspects of that test, okay? Uh, regardless which event you're looking at, but I think it's gonna give the commander now the true tools when they come up and look at, the soldier cannot even deadlift at least 70% on the score, or they cannot throw the ball adequate distance or they're lacking in two-mile run. You now, as a strength coach within that organization, within that needs analysis, you now can build that specificity into it to allow the, those other aspects of your training to go into maintenance state, and then those areas can become primary. So now you're more balanced. You're in a position now that that commander can really use you on the battlefield fully. That's that's fantastic. So, you know, when 
you know, I, I look at this and I think about it from a performance standpoint and you're, you're looking at pure needs analysis and you're, you're essentially going directly at it, you know, and, and Brad Godbold is a good mutual friend of ours. And, and man, he, he and I have talked at, at nauseum about some of the stuff that he's doing up there uh, at Fort Campbell and, and the way that, the way that, that everything is shifting is really, really neat to see how, how it's coming full circle and becoming a human performance, uh, a human performance metric as opposed to just how many push-ups and pull-ups can you do? Because you know when you when you think military, you start thinking about, you know, the physical side of the military. Everybody's immediate thought is basic training, and then you get out of basic training, and it's just like, all right, I did a whole bunch of push-ups and pull-ups, and I ran a lot, and and, and that's kind of what the the you know the everyman thinks about about the military. So changing this this narrative and, and driving it to where strength is important. You know, the anaerobic system is important. We've got to be able to sprint. So, you know, you mentioned the sled drag. So that was something that's brand new that came into this. Where did the equipment for all this come from? So, you know, like this is something that had to be phased in and not something you switched to immediately, obviously. So when you're starting to bring in, so you go from yeah, correct me if I'm if I'm mistaken, but you went from a push-ups, pull-ups, and a two-mile run was the APFT. Oh, just push-ups, sit-ups, two-mile run for the Army. The Marine Corps does the pull-ups. Correct. Okay, so push-ups, sit-ups, two-mile run for the Army. Marine Corps added in pull-ups. So that requires nothing more than the Marine or the soldier to to be completed. Essentially, is, I mean, the soldier doesn't have any, any really any equipment. The Marine has to at least have access to a pull-up bar. Right. So, but but nothing outside of that. Nope. Now, switching over to the ACFT, we're talking about a med ball toss. We're talking about sled drags. We're talking about deadlifting. Where'd that equipment come from? How did we get to How did we get to that? Where'd we phase all that in? Yeah, so we really phased that in, you know, starting back in 16, late 16, early 17, we started to uh, field the initial assessment or the teams that were going to go out and run a lot of the uh, pilots within the testing aspect. Sornamex, as we both know, and have spent a lot of time with that community, they are essentially the, the, the gold standard when it comes to equipment with regards to any performance aspect. So without a doubt, that's, that's who I leaned on. You know, I built that first performance center at Fort Jackson in 2015 uh, at the U.S. Army Physical Fitness School. I reached out to Bert, reached out to the team with Mike Skaggs and them, and, you know, we started having the dialogues and got them lined up with the right people so eventually they could start to get some of those contracts in place so we could start getting the equipment out to the units so that we could start getting some of this testing done. Uh, it was unfortunate that, you know, Sornanex didn't get the whole uh, project. Uh, it was kind of split, but they did get around 50% of the equipment. Uh, and it's, it's really great to know that Soldiers has got some of the best equipment in the world, you know, to train with. That's not only going to be durable and dependable, but it's going to also continue to have that relationship when they do have problems or issues with that equipment package that they can get it resolved in a timely manner. So, yes, that's what we did. We utilized Sornex and we started filling in quickly all the baseline data, uh, baseline equipment they needed for those assessments. So what, what has been the, the result? So we, we, you know, we started phasing this in and, and we're, you know, we're 10 years down the road. You started doing this, we're probably eight years down the road. Um, 
where, where are we at? Where have we gotten to? What results has the military seen with this new line of thinking, this new way of training, and this new way of measuring the readiness of our soldiers and Marines? Great, great question, Taylor. I, you know, just to make sure everybody's clear, you know, 16 through 8 through mid-17, we ran a lot of testing, and all that was pilot stuff just to collect data and kind of see where we were at. We started running it as a diagnostic PT test, which means when you say diagnosis in the military, it means it's not for record. That means it's not holding you accountable if you pa don't pass it to stay in uniform or to get a promotion or to allow yourself to be able to serve in different units. So it's essentially still a diagnostic until just this uh, last year, okay? The data we received, everything was solid. The big thing that I talked to and alluded to a little bit earlier was the making the adjustment on the knee tuck, excuse me, to go to a plank. We, we had a lot of issues in the, in the beginning of the phase of the pilot for the female uh, soldier to be able to meet the baseline benchmarks to pass that event. So with that data that was collected, that's where we made the shift. And again, that, that goes back to the big army because at the end of the day, you know, there's 80,000 people a year coming in. You got to make sure you don't put yourself in a position where now only 40,000 are even eligible to serve. Uh, so we, we had to still meet those benchmarks in the conventional side. Uh, so overall, right now, what we're getting is really solid but it will not become a record test until this uh, October. So right now we're still in a diagnostic state because of the flex and the plank and the knee tuck and having to get more data for that with that adjustment to see if we're now where we need to be. Because we didn't design the test just like the first test was not designed. 100% is not going to pass. It's just a fact. Um, but we got to make sure we still get the high percentage uh, that's going to meet the baseline numbers, at least on those initial contracts that haven't been in the uniform for four, five, eight, ten years. No, so I, I, absolutely. And you don't want everybody to pass, right? Because then it's too easy. And then you're, you're, you have people in the in in uniform that probably physically should not be in uniform. Because when when it comes time to you know deal with the real stuff, that they're not physically capable of handling their job and when some and, and just like in athletics when when someone doesn't do their job things go awry well in the military someone didn't do their job people die and and that's that's never good so i i love the fact that it's not it's attainable but it's not like it's something that you can just walk in and do so you know my my question then is is now is is kind of coming back around to that so let's say someone wants to wants to look at going into the military even even just the National Guard, right? And and someone is a, a high school student that's talking about wants to go to the National Guard, and they're going to have to meet the requirements of the ACFT starting this October. And if they're going to go into the military when they graduate high school next year in May, what do they need to be doing? How can they prepare so that when they walk in, they're ready to meet the requirements of the ACFT and get that uniform and rock and roll? Hey, great question, you know, and, and, and how, obviously if you got a high school kid, you know, that's interested, you know, in serving in the military, 
you know, obviously if they're in, in high school still and they have actually participated in some sports, they got to vote. You know, they're in a better position because they got people like yourself now that's at the high school level that are really allowing soldiers to be more well-rounded and at least touch some of, some of these other fitness components and not be kind of one uh, trick, trick pony. If you're one trick pony, you're going to be set up a failure now if you're going to join the military, okay? Obviously, they need to make sure in a typical week, they touch all these different fitness components. They need to get a baseline screening and assessment. You know, and that's the greatest thing. You know, my app that I just got done developing, it, it actually designed that way. They're going to do a deadlift. They're going to do a baseline squat. You know, they're going to do a standing long jump. You know, they're going to run some uh, anaerobic sprints, some shuttles. They're going to get a baseline one to three mile run to kind of see where they're at. They're going to be able to see that. If they could do that, if that uh, future soldier could do that in the beginning, they could get some baseline numbers. They could then start training properly. And, and proper training would look like, you know, two days a week of some kind of strength and power, mix in some anaerobic within those two days, and then give themselves one day a week of, of, of a true aerobic training. They could easily work in, you know, one week of run with some kind of uh, uh, rolling terrain to maybe next week go on a light foot march and start learning to move under a load as one of their aerobic days. Those other couple days really allows them to focus on their specificity. If they say, hey, I want to be in the military, really, really, what you want to do? What's your aspirations? Well, I want to be an aviator. I want to go uh, be a gunner on a, uh, a helicopter. Well, that's great. You start knowing some of those pieces and that's the greatest thing about my app. It starts giving you that tactical specificity based on your MOS that you want to serve in. But if you don't have that, then, you know, you can actually do a little bit of research and try to work in what I call a high intensity circuit one day that has some of those variables that kind of lines up with what type of job you'd want to do. So, again, if I'm going to be a medic, I'm going to have to do things when it comes to high physical demand, like doing CASI back. So I got to incorporate some farmer carriers, you know, on some of those. You know, if I'm going to be a, a, a field artilleryman, I want to shoot some big guns. I, I, need to, I need to get a landmine and do some transverse plane work. That specificity is what's going to set them up. But if they've never done any activity, have played any sports, they got to start out really basic. They got to learn to move. So understanding some of those basic movement patterns with coaches like yourself or other people like myself that's out there in the community because they can really set themselves up for failure if they don't correct some of that before they start to get in some high volume and high training because we all know that goes right into what? Overtraining and then they get an injury and then that six months before they ship the basic is ends up being wasted. Yeah, ab absolutely. I can remember um... – you know, my, my brother-in-law who's in the Marine Corps, when he went through MEPS and all that, I can, I can remember all the stuff that they had him doing. And, and it was, um, it, it was, it started off pretty small and, and then gradually built and built and built. And that way, when he went to Paris Island, it was, you know, straight in there on the yellow footprints and he's ready to go. Um, yeah. so that man, I, 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 so your app, your app is designed for current warriors and then maybe anybody who would want to be or, or even former warriors, things like that. But you have it configured to where, correct me, because I want to make sure I understood this. You have it configured to where you can um, 
you can put in an MOS that you want to do and you can get baseline assessment done through the app and it'll basically program out for you exactly what you need to be doing, how you need to be doing it, when instructional videos, technical videos, pretty much the entire thing that you need to be a successful warrior within the U.S. military. That's correct. So it's turnkey. Uh, the, the program that we're coming out with is called designed for your basic training, ROTC, ROTC, or junior ROTC and ROTC, your delayed entry program, and already signed up is ready to go to go to war, you know, ready to go to boot camp, basic training, et cetera. It's designed that way. So after they complete the 12 weeks, if they don't have an ask them to choose an MOS, you know what I mean? Something that's going to give them a little more tactical specificity because they're going to get one day a week of that type of training. And the more they know, the better they can maximize it, just like you alluded to earlier. If I'm an offensive lineman, that program is going to look day a little bit different on that sports specificity day versus if I'm a defensive lineman. And I'm not trying to protect the passer. I'm trying to go after and kill that passer. You know, uh, so that specificity is available once you get through the initial baseline. But that baseline tier three will still give you all the data points you need that we can drive that individualized program. So, for example, you go in, you can't hit at least baseline number on deadlift. You're going to get extra, you're going to get extra in day in. So we can improve that over the 12 weeks. You smoke that baseline. Let's say you're going to hit 300 pounds on your deadlift and you weigh a buck 50. So you're at two times body weight. You're exactly where we need. We're going to keep you more in a maintenance state on that deadlift. We're not trying to get you to 500 because we're not making Olympic lifters in the clean. If we can't get to some baseline numbers on that, we're going to add some extra additional. The program's going to be able to adjust on its own based on those assessments and needs analysis. You know, I, I, man, this is awesome. This is fantastic. I had no idea this was in the works. And when I saw this posted this morning, I was like, man, this is great because I'm going to get to talk to Donnie about all this today. Um, so, man, this this app is, is super intriguing. So where where is it found? Is there a cost associated? Is it subscription-based? Give, give us some some kind of some details on the app itself. Yeah, so it's, it's the platform runs through Train Heroic. Um, and we're currently up, you know, it's on the Sornanex uh, landing site. You can go there and pull up uh, the link there to register, or you can go into Trainer Report. I've got both the links uh, hung up on my Instagram page at, at one time powerlifting. The cost is $69 for three months. So it runs you about $22, $23 a month for the entire program. Um, it is run on tier three with minimal equipment. We're in, right now in communication with Sornex. We're looking to still build out a minimal equipment package list in the future that's going to come out and give you a reduced cost, you know, for the first three months on the app. Um, and again, when I say minimal equipment, you're going to see some of my videos in there. I got a, I got a rucksack on the weight. That's what I'm doing with squats. You know, I'm doing farmer carries with a rucksack. Uh, having some simple kettlebells and some bands, you know, a pull-up uh, station. Obviously, if you got a couple things like a squat rack and a few other little things, it's going to really help you out, you know, to do some of the other pieces. But for somebody with nothing, they can they can load up a backpack, 
put it in a front squat position and start doing some work. Um, so it gives you those modification options within the app to say, do you have access to a facility? No, I don't. Do you have your own equipment in a garage? No, I don't. You need these pieces of equipment, some bands, you know, a couple kettlebells and then a rucksack and you'll be able to do this program. Now, I'm a big proponent of using what you have, you know, and um, my I do my training through Subversive Fitness, which is through Wolf Brigade. Uh, and I know you got to meet meet some of the Wolf Brigade people at Summer Strong this year. And something that Greg has said before, and it resonates with me very well, is, is uh, he says, all we have is all we need. Uh, because you can take anything that you have and you can use it to to create right? You can use it to, to make yourself better. They, they run a, um, an arm off of their subversive fitness thing. Some of their affiliates do something called, um, oh gosh, what? Mm, I can't remember the name of it at the, at the present second, but basically they meet out in the, in a, in a public park. Oh, and there it is. Public assistance program. That's what they call it. The public assistance program. They meet out in a, in a public area and they, they basically just have a milk jug filled with water and, and duct tape over the top of it really well so it's, so it holds. I mean, that's a, that's roughly, what's a gallon, a little over eight pounds. A gallon of liquid is a little over eight pounds. And so they use a gallon a gallon jug in each hand with water in it, you know. And if you, if you were to fill that gallon jug up with concrete or rocks or whatever else, I mean, you can find ways, fill it with sand, whatever it might be, you can find ways. That's right. To, to, to achieve what you want to achieve. And I think that the barrier to entry that people create so much is mental, right? And, and, and people look at, oh, I don't have a gym. I don't have a squat rack. I don't have a bar with plates. And I don't have this. I don't have that. And, and there are guys like yourself. There's guys like Greg Walsh. There's guys like Ross Hillier uh, of Nomad Strength who, who are doing incredible things with people with next to nothing. I mean, just minimal equipment. And the the common the commonality that I see there is that with all those people who have issues there is that the barrier to entry only exists in their own mind. And if they would ever remove that and just say, you know what, to heck with the barrier to entry, I'm going to bust through this. I'm going to decide that I want to make this work. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to make it work. Even if it's going and getting a, a, a daggum axe and felling a tree and picking up big, heavy logs if that's what it takes, that's what I'm going to do. And, and I think that mindset has evaded our country now for a while. It's evaded most of my generation and the generation behind it. But I'm starting to see more and more people returning to that. And it is it is dead gum exciting. No, that's really good that you alluded to all that. And that was, you know, it's one of the big things that I really want to try to emphasize because our warriors, you know, we, a lot of times we don't train with any equipment. And, you know, just recently with the addition of the ACFT, more units are starting to get more equipment, you know, and they have access now to be able to do some other things. But, you know, for the history of the military, it never really had anything. I mean, I served, when I joined back in 1990, the only time I really used equipment was at an MWR gym on my own. It was never like organized. Like I didn't go with a bunch of Marines, you know, and we went to the weight room, you know, and worked out. It, di it didn't happen like that when I was in, you know. If we did anything that was close to like weight-bearing training, 
was again cans filled with cement and hooked to uh, PVC pipes or uh, metal pipes so that we could do uh, reps and presses and other things like that, logs, etc., ropes and stuff of that nature. So no, that, that was why when I designed this and developed this program, I said, I, I want the tier three to be minimal equipment. Our tier two and tier one, we come out with those in the near future, they're gonna have more equipment based. So it gives them more options that has a soldier that's been in. For example, you graduate to a tier one, you might be out there with Brad, okay, out at 101st at Fort Campbell, and he's got access to a gym. So now you've got some other things like a GHD and a hand roller, and you've got some additional equipment. It's going to be programmed into that. Um, to go back on your uh, question you asked a little earlier, I didn't, I didn't allude to it, so I, I pulled it up. I want to just kind of just highlight some of the numbers for the ACFT, you know, these, these future soldiers that's coming in, that high school student says, hey, I'm a female. What do I need to do baseline, okay, to be able to finish basic training and at least hit some of these baseline numbers? Like a female, you know, on the deadlift, we like to see them around 200 pounds, you know, for a deadlift. For a male, like to really see them around close to 300 pounds on a deadlift. So if you've got a, you know, a young, a young warrior, future warrior, if they haven't been doing that event, they're probably not going to do too well at it. You know, they're going to have a lot of work to do in basic training. When you start thinking about uh, your two-mile run, you know, we like to see the female be around, you know, uh, 14 minutes, you know, for two miles. And then the male, you know, being around 13.30 to 14 minutes. Looking at a sprint drag carry, you know, we would like to see them around two minutes uh, to be able to complete the 250 meters, you know, with all three of those events within inside of it. So that's just some baseline numbers, but any of those future soldiers, you know, they can type in ACFT standards into Google uh, uh, and have an opportunity to go and look at the grading scales to have some of the baseline numbers that they should be striving for coming in. So, you know, we, we look at these baseline numbers and then, you know, obviously there's also the other end of it, this maxing it out and getting as much as you, you know, the, the top amount of reps or whatever. Um, in your opinion, how many soldiers fall somewhere in the middle? You know, when you, you look at the opposite ends of the spectrum, you have people who are barely squeaking by, who are just getting your, your you know, baseline requirements. And then you have the, the warriors who are on the other end of the spectrum who are just maxing out everything they're doing the best that they could possibly do on everything and and there's no no improvement really for them to do um wh where does the majority of the military fall in that spectrum the majority right now is falling in you know the 70 to 80 percentile in the score that means they're averaging around 70 to 80 percent per event you know for uh each one of the six events which starts to put you around uh, a 420 to a 470 is more of your mean score right now with 600 being the top, you know, and then when you look at your bottom end, 320 is the bottom on the score. So that kind of gets you where they're at. You know, as long as I served in the military and uh, I was one of those guys that always was competing, you know, it didn't matter what school I was in or what unit I was serving in, you know, I always wanted to be the most physically fit uh, in the unit. Um, so obviously before it was a 300 was a benchmark. Your units, most of your units probably average, you know, one to three people. Maybe 10 in a unit could actually max it. 
you know, and I'm talking about a company size element, about 125 to 150 people. Uh, I would say we're pretty close to that, maybe even a little less. That's maxing 600 points. Um, so I think the tolerant with the, the standards moved up in that. I think it's a little more challenging than it was before to just get a 300. Um, because before, if you was really just a decent runner and, and above average push-up guy or gal, you could, you could max the PT test. You didn't really have to train year-round. This test forced you to, to train more year-round versus just training for the test. No, I, I, and that that's that's kind of been the that's the goal, right? It is to to have developed something that is going to push our soldiers, push our Marines, push our sailors, our, our airmen and women, to to not just train for a little while to have to pass this test. However, what is it? Once a year that they have to do no, it. No, it typically ends up being twice, but a minimum once a year. Right. So a minimum of once a year, maybe twice. So, I mean, you know, when you look at it, you look back at, at what it used to be, if that was the case, you have to do it once every six months. You could probably spend about three weeks leading up to it, and you could be just fine to pass the test. You're good to go. And then you, you basically just sit back on your heels until about three weeks out from the next one. And you just kind of repeat it with what now you're having to train year round to be able to sustain this and be able to keep, you know, keep all these different events to keep your ability to, to pass them. And so now you're forcing your forcing our military members to train and to be prepared and to be, you know, ready at the drop of a hat for any of this. And, and man, I think, I think that's, I think that's fantastic. You know, I, I haven't been in the military, um, obviously very close with a lot of members of the military and people who have served. Uh, but but uh, as a human performance coach and, and a strength coach myself, I think it's fantastic that we are, we're, we're seeing that happen. Um, because one of my biggest pet peeves with sports is people who train minimally and, and think that that's good enough, that all they have to do is go play their sport and that that's good enough training. It drives me cuckoo. Um, yeah, and- it really drives me cuckoo, you know, all my leadership positions in the Army. You know, when you end up having a lot of soldiers that done that, you know, I kind of helped, helped every unit that I led and uh, was responsible for, you know, I added additional stuff that was other physical requirements that they had to do minus just the PT test because this is this is pre-ACFT. There wasn't an ACFT that was in place, you know, during those times that I was in command. Um, but now the commander can really see where the weak links are and really can sit down with now most organization has a, a subject matter expert within their formation. So they can now lean on those experts to help them and guide them to build a proper prescription to ensure that all the soldiers within that organization doesn't have any weak links that really stands out that's going to make them more vulnerable to, to being uh, killed in the, in the battlefield or not be successful in their mission set if they are away from the front lines. So what happens if uh, someone doesn't pass ACFT? So let's, let's, let's go down that road. So when, once this becomes your standard, which you said was October, is that correct? Yes. Okay. So once this becomes a standard in October, and let's let's just say you've got um, GI Joe out there who doesn't 
doesn't meet the requirements in one way, shape, form, or fashion. What what is that? What's what's going to happen? Obviously, we're yeah, not so going to kick them out on, immediately. Based on my experience and based on the direction of going, they're making a little bit of modifications. You know, with this ACFT that's still kind of ever changing right now. So I can't allude to what that looks like since I'm not in the uniform. But I can tell you what I know to be that we build as part of the standards for that. You fail the, the events, one event or or all events. Uh, you're essentially going to now be flagged by that commander within that organization uh, to essentially most of the time are put on some kind of additional remedial PT program uh, that allows them to be able to train. And if it's one event, let's say they can't, they don't, they don't pass the, the throw. Okay. Uh, the medicine ball toss, they, they fail that, you know, it gives them an opportunity to really work on that. And then they typically get retested normally within 30 to 45 to 90 days based on that commander's recommendation. If they fail then, there's typically paperwork is started of to, for them to be out process of the military. Um, you know, and that's going to be dependent on, you know, that command uh, structure. And then if they're going to adhere uh, to all the army regulations on that. So there, I mean, this, this is not just a, this is not just something that, that people are doing to get into the military. This is something that people are going to have to continue to do successfully to stay into, in the military. Um, I, I mean, I, I love it. I think, I think it's great. Um, obviously I, I'm a, I'm a big, uh, big supporter of the military and veterans. And I, I think that, that, uh, anytime we can make, you know, elevate standards, but it's a great idea because, you know, a rising tide does raise all the ships. So when we elevate the standards of physical fitness, it's going to continue to elevate the standards of our, of our combat operations and how we do everything. I think it's awesome. No, that's great. I really appreciate the, the dialogue on the ACFT. It's, it's still brand new. The culture's still not completely sold on it. When I say the culture, you know, you've got general officers and sergeant majors that served for 30 plus years, you know, and they're kind of like my age and they come up in my environment and brought up in the same rigors. The difference was I, I was educated, you know, that was my field to go into the exercise science field. And that was why I was always receptive for change. And I always really pushed towards more of the science side where majority of our commanders and SAR majors don't have that background. So that's why, again, it's still a, a pretty good uh, push to move the culture, but at least the elephant's now walking. When the elephant's walking, we know they're moving in the right direction. Before, the elephant hadn't even moved. Uh, and you know as well as I do, you're not going to get that elephant to go nowhere if you haven't started to get that elephant to move, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, you got you to get the ball rolling, as they say. Um but man, I, I, I appreciate all the dialogue about the ACFT. It really intrigues me from a performance standpoint and then just uh, I, the whole thing, the, how we're changing stuff and, and, and trying to, to better our military and, and create a, a, a better soldier so that we can be more successful. Um, so that, that's awesome. So now I want to I transition to something a little more, uh, a little more fun for me um, because – you just got back from Omaha, Nebraska, taking in the College World Series, and I cannot tell you how utterly and insanely jealous I am of that. Uh, 
I, uh, when I left junior college, I went and played football at the University of Mississippi at Ole Miss. My little brother played football at Ole Miss, so we are diehard Rebels. My wife graduated from Ole Miss. Um, it, my, my kids run around screaming hotty toddy all the time, so we are, <laughs> we are huge, huge Rebel fans in this house. Um, and obviously, you got to watch my Rebels win the national championship last week. And so, man, what, what was Omaha like? Man, you are exactly right. It was awesome. Uh, it's something that's been on the bucket list. It's my first time ever being out to Omaha. And, you know, I probably had it on there since I played uh, the first first uh, baseball game that I got old enough to know that there was a college World Series back when I was probably about nine or ten years old. Uh, I played all the way through uh, college. And, you know, it was always my aspiration to want to get out there. And, I mean, you know, my balls, my Tennessee balls wasn't there, but I'm going to tell you, you know, I fell in love with the Ole Miss Rebels. You know, the fans were were so great. You know, they were very humbling. Uh, they were very much what I call true fans. Fans, they didn't just do it. They truly love. You know, the Rebels, your organizations, all my heart tremendously. Just see how you know much they. Them and how they really act like normal human beings and didn't get out there really act a fool. It's just, it's unfortunate. I've been to a lot of college sporting events uh, at various, various sporting events from Florida to Georgia, you know, to LSU, to, to Bama, et cetera. And I've got to tell you, Ole Miss is right up there with my balls. You know, they they love their fans and they're just not going to just come out there and give everybody else a hard time. Let me tell you, they were <laughs> the Ole Miss Rebels. They, they, they run the place there. If it was 26,000 people there, 22,000 of them were Ole Miss that love those Rebel fans. Uh, and uh, what a, what a game, man. I mean, for them to come out there and hit three home runs back to back to back in about the fifth inning of game one, to break the all-time record in college baseball to ever hit three home runs back-to-back. I mean, there's no other awarding feeling, you know, when you're a fan and you're watching these young guys going out there and just smacking the balls. I mean, that's what we we pay to go see, you know. I'm I'm a big pitching guy, but, you know, you can't beat beat the crowd and the roar when you get them kind of home runs back-to-back and you you walk away with game one victory uh, and you come out game two. You know, and it's a pitching battle, and I was loving it. Uh, both pitchers were on point. You know, they wouldn't allow a lot of hits, not a lot of base runners, but they were still a good bit of drama, you know, that really elevated the game towards the end. And me and my sons, I had both my boys out there with me. We all flew out together and watched the game. And, you know, we stayed for the end. You know, we stayed the whole time to take in the whole ceremony and, and take in the whole piece of the College World Series. Uh, it was truly a, a humbling experience. It was one that's never, you know, not going to always be on my top of my bucket list that was completed. And I'm so thankful for your, your Rebels and how they, uh, you know, set the tone in the SEC and how they were really such loving fans that really just interacted with me and my boys, you know, the whole time we were there for five days. You know, I've got to, I've got to, I got to throw this out there. So, Tennessee came into Oxford this year, um, and Ole Miss was ranked number one in the country. And this was back to the end of February, first of March. 
and uh, Tennessee comes in and, and people that don't follow college baseball, Tennessee through the regular season and even into the postseason is probably one of the most dominant baseball teams I've ever seen at the college level. I think they only lost like maybe six to eight games on the entire season. Yeah, they um, lost seven total. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was just ridiculous utterly ridiculous season that they had. Um, and I, I hated that they got matched up with Notre Dame because that, Notre Dame was one of the few teams in the country that was a poor matchup for Tennessee um, in the Super Regional. And, and I really would have loved to have seen them at Omaha because Tennessee fans are very, very passionate as well. But they came into Oxford and they swept us when we were ranked number one. They took all three games. Um, and our our senior captain uh, who's, is Tim Elko. Um, oh, yeah. After after the sweep of Tennessee, kind of was you know people were you know the media was asking blah 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 this that and the other and he says, in, in at the end of February he says if we make it to Omaha, we're going to win the national championship. Now that's all fine and good, but then you realize that on May first of this year they were seven and fourteen in the SEC, had a losing SEC record. We got bounced from the SEC tournament in a play-in game against Vanderbilt. And the only way we squeaked into the postseason tournament was the fact that we had a midweek game with Arkansas State that didn't get made up because of weather and then how late it was in the season. And it allowed our RPI to be just what it needed to be, to be the last team selected in an at-large bid. And then they ran the flipping table. (laughs) I've never seen anything like it. It was absolutely unbelievable to watch that. And just the whole thing, you know, my, my little brother was there. He went, him and his, uh, him and his girlfriend and some of their friends went up there and, and he was sending me pictures and videos and stuff. And it was just really, really cool to, to, to get that vantage point and to see it. Um, even, even the jello shot thing, like I, I didn't know that was a thing, but apparently the, the most that they had ever sold to one fan base in a year was last year when Mississippi state won the national championship. And it was like, 2,500 jello shots over the entire course of the time at Omaha, which is, which roughly comes out to right around about 10 days. <laughs> at the end of it this year, Ole Miss had sold 18,777 wow. jello shots. Wow. Um, so they, apparently they actually even ran out of jello. Like they had, there's no more jello in the city of Omaha. Wow. Apparently it was unbelievable. Um, and, you know, we, we were looking at it. It was really cool is they, they, they had this massive response. Ole Miss and Arkansas got into a jello shot war, essentially, with the fan bases, and it was going back and forth until Arkansas got beat out and left, and then Ole Miss just kind of ran it off the table. But the, the owner of the jello shot place, I don't know if you saw this, he put out a statement that was just – he was about how amazed he was with all of it, how humbled he was with all of it. So all the money that they made on the jello shots, which – was substantial. I mean, it was like $95,000 just on the Ole Miss fan base and in, in just oh, wow. Jello shots. So all the money that they made on Jello shots through the time, they're going to take $2 up, $2 per Jello shot, and donate it to food pantries in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and in Oxford, Mississippi, oh, wow. to, to give awesome. back to the community. So I thought that, that was really, awesome. really cool. And um, man, getting to getting to see some of that stuff and. Uh, some just the the way that that uh, Ole Miss overcame what a lot of people thought was just a foregone season. People were calling for the coach to be fired. I mean, he's been here twenty two years. Yeah, yeah. and you know, people calling for him to be fired and and all this stuff. And I, I I'll I'll be honest, I was one of them. I, I even at one point was like, man, look, I love Coach Bianco, but 
it's time for something new. We, we're, it's the same thing. If we can't get to Omaha, we make regionals, we get to supers, and it's like, man, we just can't break through. And, that, man, he held in there, and he kept those guys together, and they had great leadership. And, and, and here we are, you know, a month and a half later with a national championship trophy, and, and it's all the haters and the critics have suddenly been silenced. No, you're exactly right. I mean, it's awesome that y'all are going to now, you know, according to the AD, I know you probably watched the uh, ceremony and the show, uh, you know, that you're going to have old Tim, you know, as a statue, you know, at, before you come into uh, y'all's baseball park. Uh, I really think that is awesome, you know, that you're going to invest in really one of the, the leaders that was in line with the coaches that really helped, I think, take the team to where they needed to be uh, to prevail in Omaha. Uh, and it's just awesome. You know, it gave me cold chills to hear, you know, they're going to get, make a statue for him, uh, at, at the university. I mean, it just speaks a volume and, and a lot of, of, uh, respect so much for the old Miss Rebels. I, I, I never really knew y'all that well. Um, uh, but I tell you, I've got enough, I've got a love for, for y'all's team. Uh, and, and, uh, it was really great to really talk with a lot of the fans. I ate breakfast pretty much every morning right there at the hotel across the street uh, from the stadium and just had some really great conversations. And one of the highlights of one of them was at the end, he essentially said, I'm so thankful, you know, that, that the balls didn't come. He said, because y'all swept us. He said, we was not wanting to see y'all. If everybody we wanted to see was like, we was not looking forward we just thought Tennessee was going to be here too. We just didn't want to run into y'all again. No, I mean, I, I I agree. Tennessee was tough, man. And I was nervous about Arkansas. Arkansas always seems to kind of have our number um, with baseball. Uh, but, you know, the, the thing with Tim Elko is really, really cool. Uh, and, and I don't know if you know any of the backstory on him at all. So, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to kind of cover this really quickly for anybody listening who's unfamiliar with college baseball and how the draft works. So a, a kid becomes draft eligible after their junior year once they go to college. Um, and so Tim Tim was a redshirt junior last year, so which means he had one year of eligibility left this year. And so you get drafted higher when you're a junior than you would if you're a senior because you have you have leverage against the the major league baseball organization. You can you don't have to go and get, and play. You can go back to school and play that last year. So they draft you higher and offer you more money as a way to entice you to go ahead and sign out and, and, and leave school. So one, But once you've played your final year of a college eligibility, you have no leverage. You just have to take what you're given. And so that's why a lot of guys don't stay all the way through because when they get a chance, they're like, I'm not going to get drafted any higher than this next year. That's right. And so they leave. So Tim, Tim's a redshirt junior last year, and about midway through the season, tore his ACL and had surgery, and then came back uh, right at the end of the season, and all he did was hit. Um, they they cleared him to to basically hit, and it, it Tim, Tim was either hitting a home run or a single. That was it. And so um, what, what Keith Carter, our athletic director, was talking about when he's given that announcement is that, that everybody just loved Elko and they loved his energy and his passion. And he came back um, and he hit was just starting to hit home runs, you know, at, at the end of the season. He even hit, he hit a grand slam in the regional that was just absolutely ridiculously incredible. And he's just li like literally limping around the bases. 
And so it became this thing on social media. People were tagging the athletic director on social media, talking about build the statue, build the statue, build the statue. And nobody from the university ever said anything about it. Like he wouldn't address it. It was just, just mums the word. We, and then Tim gets, Tim didn't have the draft he wanted, you know, it didn't go the way he wanted it to go. And he said that in prayer and in talking to God, that God said, man, you're not done at Ole Miss. He comes back. They start having the slump. They're going to, really down part of the season, you know, there's really bad SEC record. And he said, he's just praying. And the one word he got back from God was believe, believe, believe. So he just hung in there and kept believing. And then goes on to win a national championship. He broke the home run record at Ole Miss for single season and home runs, you know, was the heart and soul of the team. And then at the ceremony the other day, Keith Carter comes out there and has him hold the trophy in different places and says, I'm trying to figure out which one looks yeah. best for the statue. <laughs> and brought it up and said they're going to get it done. I've never heard of that. You know, oftentimes when you see somebody get a statue built, it's, it's they've won the Heisman or, you know, they were this, they donated a whole bunch of money or, or something oh, or the yeah. other. But uh, yeah. I can't think, and I was talking to my brother about it, I can't think of anyone more deserving of that recognition than that young man. He has been the lifeblood, heart, and soul of that team this year. And, and it's been an, a really fun postseason run to watch him. Well, I thank you for sharing that. And that just, you know, gives me more uh, more confidence in the Ole Miss Rebels, you know, because, you know, you had five players that came up and spoke during that time period, and Tim being one of them you know, to allude to Jesus Christ in their life. And it just, you know, touched my heart in many ways to know that they've got a lot of players on that team uh, that, that has a relationship with Christ, uh, which in turn reflects leadership. So uh, there's no doubt the coaches are, have got a foundation of Christ uh, within that organization. And it just, it makes me want to believe with the Rebels with them. Well, absolutely. So I'll tell you what we need to do. Um, we need to we need to get together this fall and get you out to to Oxford for a football game because if you thought Omaha was cool, you got to come check out the Grove. There is nothing right. like the Grove do. on an SEC Saturday. Most definitely, I got to get out there, man. We got to get out there and hook it up. Yeah, man, we'll do it. Uh, but Donnie, I think I think we can just kind of kind of wrap this thing up, man. I'm, I'm so I'm so glad you uh, got to get back on and do a part two with us to really dive into the ACFT and what that looks like and. Um, man, it, this has been a really, really fun two episodes for me. I got a lot of great feedback on the first episode, and I, I know everybody's going to enjoy this one as well. Uh, man, I appreciate you being on, being such a great guest, and sharing so much with us, and, and just being willing to to take a deep dive into some of that stuff. So, man, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Taylor. It's been it's been awesome for myself. Take care, man. I look forward to catching up with you soon. Absolutely. Take care, Don. You've been listening to the Discomfort by Design podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and leave a review. And we'll see you next time.